This is directed at my critics because I know I have some out there. <laughs> and if you notice that when there's comments placed on the episodes, anything that's adversarial, I don't address. I delete it because I know there's a bunch of people that just like to get in fights on the internet so they can hide behind their fake little screen names in their mommy's basement and spew their bio. <laughs> Here's something. Look into my eyes. Do you honestly think after how many years of doing this shit that I'm going to fucking back off, change my stance on any of this shit or whatever? No, I'm not. Let me educate you people. The, do any of you people that don't like what I do know what a variable resistor is? Cool. Let me fucking tell you what it is. It's an on and off switch. You don't like what's fucking going on? Turn it off. That's a good tip. Uh, besides, I've never heard of plaid flavor. Ew. Uh, greetings, friends, and uh, welcome in to this, the 226th edition of Fusebox, tantalizingly entitled Art House of Pancakes. And I am your seemingly serene, but really a roiling maelstrom of seething desire, host, Mark Rose, and over there, behind the steaming mounds of bacon, is the Archbishop of Amplitude himself, Milt Keynes, everybody. Well, thank you kindly. Now look, man, now I'm as hungry as hell. Well, thanks for that. And you're so very welcome, Mr. Keynes. Well, you know, you can get the recommended daily amount of ear food necessary to maintain proper health and sanity by uh, joining us on this episode, I assure you. Well, you know, five out of three doctors recommend fuse box ear food as part of a healthy diet. Yes. Yes, they do. On this one, friends, we have the uh, conclusion of the interview we started on the last show with the man, the myth, the legend, 42nd Street Pete, a truly terrific guy who knows a thing or nine about Grindhouse films and the history thereof. Uh, and uh, if, uh, by the way, you haven't caught the first part, well, I'd say go right now, quick as a bunny, and catch it. That's right. It's absolutely no secret that uh, I'm a huge fan of the music of one Frank Zappa. <laughs> no, no secret at all. <laughs> <laughs> and the ribbing never stops around here about that. But let me tell you, I, I, I followed the guy since the late 60s and uh, have had the uh, distinct pleasure of seeing him perform many times over the years with the uh, various incarnations of his uh, bands as well. Did you get a lanyard? 
no, sir, but uh, Mr. Keynes, I'll have you know that it is actually today's secret word. Today's secret word is lanyard. When uh, Frank passed away in the uh, early 90s, it uh, it really did. It, it left quite a hole in the uh, musical entertainment field, certainly for me, uh, and uh, as well for many who uh, followed Frank. Uh, over the passing years, you know, there have been attempts um, to pay tribute to the music of Zappa and uh, some brave souls endeavoring to play the compositions. And uh, the most famous and, and actually uh, are quite good at it is a, uh, a band known as Project Object. But many others, uh, although competent, not particularly compelling. Well, and some of the times they feature uh, like past members of Zappa's band in those tribute shows, yeah? Yeah, and you know, if they did that, that might elevate the performance a bit. But, you know... If the backup band was struggling, and uh, if you're at all familiar with uh, Zappa's work, it's a safe bet to assume some might be struggling with the the near virtuoso level skill required to play this material. And and it kind of takes the energy down, especially when a lot of these tracks were uh, oftentimes played down-tempo, meaning not really at the speed Frank had uh, envisioned them. But uh, they were, in fact, usually wearing the proper lanyard. (laughs) Now, uh, when Frank's son Dweezil took the show on the road, it was the uh, first time in recent memory that, uh, at least for me, I heard the music the way his dad had intended it. So that was a hoot to see. And Dweezil had access to the uh, uh, Zappa band alumni as well. So we got to see some great performances along the way. So was he still doing that? Uh, no. And that's uh, that's an interesting turn. Dweezil did those tours uh, for, a, for a decade or more before uh, choosing to go another direction. So once again, it was a wee quiet out there for a while. So uh, a couple of months back, I happened to see this mention of a show that is coming to the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland, and it's called the Stinkfoot Orchestra. And it's evidently a 14-piece band featuring one of uh, Zappa's most beloved vocalists, Napoleon Murphy Brock, on uh, sax and vocals. Yeah, now, seriously, Brock was one of the most... um, iconic singers and arguably one of the most popular of uh, Frank's bands back in the day there. And if you know Frank's albums, uh, then we're talking about Apostrophe, One Size Fits All, Overnight Sensation, Roxy and Elsewhere. These are classic albums in the Zappa catalog, and uh, Napoleon Murphy Brock is uh, all over these albums. So I was pretty intrigued to see uh, what this was all about. So, I uh, took a chance, grabbed some tickets for this event, and uh, then uh, forced several folks to enjoy the outing with me. No, I don't want to go. No thanks. Got to rearrange my pantry. No thanks, really. Uh, I have a root canal scheduled. Don't they kill chickens on stage? And then, something happened. Did it involve a giant poodle known as Brinobulax? You know, I saw what you did there. Very good, Mr. Keynes, but... uh, not sure the entirety of our audience Look, will... just 
just listen to cheapness on the, the, the Roxy disc. You, you'll get it. You'll get it. Enough said. Hell, I had to. Actually, it was pretty funny. <laughs> Does humor belong in music, Mr. Keynes? Huh? Yeah. Well, for the answer to that and the mysterious and somewhat thrilling conclusion to our Stinkfoot Orchestra story, please, stay with us. Aren't we? I don't understand. Alrighty, folks. So, uh, when we last left our thrilling story, I, I had a group of brave but unwitting friends who were about to attend this uh, mystery show by the Stinkfoot Orchestra featuring Napoleon Murphy Brock, one of the most beloved vocalists in Zappa's mid-70s-era band. So, we, uh, we get to the venue... And I noticed right away that there's a, a nice crowd was forming for this thing. I also noticed that there's a friend of mine standing there in line. And so uh, I go up there and we strike up a conversation. And as I'm there, uh, from behind me, I hear a voice coming from our social media maven, Regina Carroll, say, Hey, Mark, there's somebody I'd like you to meet. So I turn around and I'm staring directly into the smiling face of none other than... Napoleon Murphy Brock. You fainted and had to be rushed to the nearest watering hole. I almost dropped my lanyard. He was delightful. He was absolutely delightful. So we, we got to chat for a little while, and I asked if maybe uh, we could schedule an interview for the show here. And he said, yeah, sure, but why don't you check with Nick? It's actually his band. Right answer. Indeed it was. And I figured, well, I'm not going to bother Nick at the moment. Why don't we just wait until after the show, and then we'll approach him and, you know, and see what he thinks. Friends, let me be as succinct about this band as I can. Go see them. If they come to your area, even if, even if you're just the, the casual Zappa fan, and uh, I frankly don't know what the hell that looks like, but if you are, please, do your future self a big favor and don't miss them. I know they have a big gig coming up uh, in the uh, L.A. area soon, and uh, we've linked to their site and their show dates and all that stuff in the show notes, so please click away. Let me just highlight one thing here. Everybody in this band is amazing, but the horn section in this band is utterly fabulous. Clearly, these are jazz cats. Well, one chap actually confirmed that. Tenor and soprano sax player Joe Majors, who we got to chat with a little bit there, said that uh, most of the horn guys come from jazz because a lot of the folks that they were auditioning uh, that came from, like, more rock or even R&B backgrounds were... Uh, a tad confused by the charts. <laughs> Those charts? Yeah, not for the squeamish, because uh, the material, much of the material they cover, is really not the common tribute fare, although, you know, they'll do the faves, believe me, and really, really well. And uh, just to illustrate this, uh, here's a few clips from a uh, show that they uh, did back in April at Club Fox, and I, I think that's in the Bay Area. Check it out. Uh-huh. 
I'm informed uh, by Joe that they have like four hours of material in this uh, repertoire. Holy car. <laughs> yeah. So suffice to say that the passion is back, friends. The tempo and articulation is spot on, and it's just plain fun. People up there are clearly enjoying playing this music and... Uh, you know, <laughs> not to pull the curtain back too far, but I got to say, I was misting up a couple of times when I was listening to some of these things. And I'm just thinking, Frank would be damn proud of this. So anyway, after the show, I went up to uh, Nick and asked if he and uh, perhaps some of his bandmates would consider doing an interview. And he said that he would be delighted. So we are working to uh, put that together right now and want to kind of time it for when uh, they come back up to town in the fall. So we're, uh, we're endeavoring to do that right now. It looks like uh, they've been to Portland about four times, and each time the word is getting out that uh, these folks, well, they're the real deal. So uh, more on that as we get it uh, slated in place. But uh, in the meantime, please check out the links to these folks uh, I promise, you will not be disappointed at all. Better than a subpoena. TheFuseBoxShow.com Yes, and but also, it's time we now uh, conclude our interview with the inimitable 42nd Street Pete. 
and uh, wrap up our discussion on Grindhouse and other machinations of the 42nd Street era, a truly splendid time was had by all. On this... The Fusebox Interview. Well, you, you've mentioned this place on a couple of occasions, and I'm very curious to know more about this. You, you mentioned a place called Liquidators. Oh, New York City Liquidators. Yeah. What's, what's the story there? Well, I had a video store called Past Midnight Video up in Rockaway, New Jersey. And, you know, I was always looking for product because I was like, you know, second time around type deal. But at that point, I could buy porn tapes for a relatively cheap price, and they basically my bread and butter. Yeah. Someone I ran into told me they could get new releases. And I'm like, okay, give me a list. So I called up, you know, this guy who was a broker and I says, I can get this stuff, you know, throwing on a couple bucks profit, you know, whatever. And the guy shows up with this box and it's they're all bootlegs. I mean they're they're in Amaray cases wrapped around. I think I remember one was Red <laughs> Scorpion, I remember that. Oh man. So I'm like, I can't fucking sell this to a guy. What are you crazy? So then he starts ranting and raving and goes, well, next time you want to go over to Liquidators yourself and get it. And I'm like, okay, where's this place? So then I tracked it down. I went down and I introduced myself. I said, you know, I'm looking for deals. And, you know, I was dealing with a guy named Norman. And they had all kinds of stuff. But also, they were basically a distribution point for bootleg mainstream movies. Oh, boy. And, like, I knew this was going on, but it had nothing to do with me. I wasn't buying them. I was just interested in closeouts, you know, cheap porn. And, you know, he used to buy a video store. So I cherry-picked the horror and stuff like that. Seemed to be the uh, the bastion of anything you wanted to find that was a little bit south of the border. Oh, yeah. It was like, you, you know, the, the killer part was you never know who was going to walk through that place. Mm. Like, one, one day Mel Brooks walked in. He wanted a copy of Gung Ho because he saw it in the window. Mel Brooks? Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, he must have been slumming it. <laughs> um, I'm still looking for this thing. Chris Rock filmed a segment of his HBO show in my section because I know that because they told me to stay home. And I said, you're paying me? And he goes, no. I said, then I'm coming. And he goes, all right, I'll pay you. So, <laughs> and let's see. Ron Jeremy used to walk in all the time. A couple of porn stars. Uh, awesome. Ox Baker, the wrestler and, you know, star of Escape from New York, as he would tell you. A couple of the porn guys. I think Chuck Zane used to come in there a lot. Frank Hennelotter all the time, because these guys are always digging through tapes. You know? Oh, of course. You never knew. So, you know, eventually he got busted. It was the biggest uh, bust on the East Coast. And then I had my video stored, and something happened. And I was always dealing with them. People go, oh, I know what you're going over here. You're going to get nailed. I said, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm, you know, whatever. They want to check my truck. I'm not doing nothing wrong. <laughs> so uh, my video store, unfortunately, got kicked out of this flea market it was in. It was like one of the bigger, really big booths because they wanted to renovate and there's all this bullshit going on. And there was no way I could pull out of there and come back in three months and, you know, actually expect to have customers. Oh, bummer. So I had to get rid of everything. He bought some of it. And then uh, I'm trying to think what happened. He, he goes, what are you, you know, what are you doing this weekend or something like that? I said, I don't know. I'm pretty much free. And he goes, well, I'm doing this show down at Atlantic City, the East Coast video show. And he goes, why don't you come down as my guest, hang out, you know, have some fun, whatever. So I'm thinking, all right, I get this, but I also know there's an ulterior motive behind this. Naturally. Mm -hmm. So he goes down with a ton of product. And he had this uh, other guy working, you know, the adult section that he had, uh, I mean, Zito. So, you know, <laughs> where he's supposed to be selling the stuff. 
So I'm down there. I'm like, I know it's going to come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I'm seeing this guy, like, not doing anything. So after he walks away, I walked over to Norm, and I said, not for nothing, you know, what are you paying this guy for? And he goes, that's why I brought you down here. Show me what you can do. So I go into my selling mode, and I basically sold about 80% of what we came down there with. So we go back, and he goes, I want you to work for me. I'm like, well, <laughs> gee, I really don't want to get busted because you seem to have a habit of doing that. Yeah. And he goes, no, no, you can keep me honest. I said, all right, so we agreed on a price, and eventually I went up running the whole adult department. And uh, <laughs> we were there, I was there for 9-11. I was there for the blackout, and uh, we were filming this uh, documentary on Chiller Theater, and he passed away while I was away, which kind of sucks because we had a big fight before I left, and that was the last words we had, which I'll tell people you know, on the show or whatever. Just watch what you say to people because you never know that that might be the last time you talk to them. Amen. Yeah. I first discovered your material through alternative cinema. Yeah. Years ago. Decades, probably. And I have to say, some of the stuff that I really, really enjoyed because, well, frankly, I never had the uh, pleasure of visiting these theaters. But the the films that were like, here's what it would be like uh, for uh, a night at... The Harem, or maybe Peepland, or Venus, or one of those places. Yeah, I did the Venus. The Venus one, we did the countdown, I think. Uh, <laughs> it's just, yeah. that is choice. Yeah, you know, what? the funny part was when I got, I, you know, I, I think I wrote something about getting stuck there. I got too fucked up. I couldn't, get, you know, get home, and I'm like, all right, it's starting to rain. It's like, you know, the bar's closed in New York at 4 o'clock, so, I, like, where can I go? <laughs> But in walking distance, and the Venus was the place. I actually saw like maybe two and a half films, and it was like the three films that I picked to put on this compilation. It was uh, Flesh of the Lotus, Teenage Fantasies, and Too Young, Too Soon, or something like that. But it's had a different title, The Horny Landlady. That's what I had seen there. And you did those wraparounds. Yeah. 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 Those were just hysterical and uh kind of like the descriptions of the if you're you know the little liner notes that get included in the disc are uh, laugh out loud funny most of the time they're just choice and the thing is i and this is what i really wanted to know about this so i know some of these came from your actual personal archives yeah and i what do you remember about that transfer process i mean how did they i know they must have handled it but how the hell was that done I went up and I watched it. You know, my partner in this, Mike Razzo, put everything he called a pancake dish. Right. They just basically made one huge reel out of God only knows how many reels. And we sat there and, you know, the guy was, you know, trying to shine shit sometimes, but mm-hmm. trying to bring up, you know, whatever color you could get in it, you know? Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of them, you know, got really washed out where you couldn't do anything with them. Well, and you could tell they were well viewed because, yeah. uh, you know, they'd go through those those projectors, what, 2,000 times a day or something? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So they get a little chewed. My deal with alternative cinema is, I'm, I'm, you know, me and Mike Rasser became partners over the thing. I walked in, said what I wanted to do, and he goes, everybody talks. Nobody ever comes up with money. I threw X amount of money on a desk. I said, match it and we're in. It's been 15-something years. Never a problem. No. And, and uh, from what I understand, they are they are pretty cool people. Oh, yeah. You know, it was, it was funny because I, I got a call from... Uh, my ex-wife and she goes well we were cleaning out this cubby hole and we think this box belongs to you and i'm like okay there was like 50 films in there so and then somebody else i had hit up 
it was funny. I went to a flea market. I'm walking around. And I walked over to this. I saw this older guy over there. I walked over. I said, you strike me as the type of guy that might have a stash of stag film somewhere. And he goes, you know, something I do. And he told me where he lived. And, you know, he, he would call me tomorrow after the market. And I'll show you what I got. And he had a steamer chest full of shit. And I'm like, okay, I'll buy these too. Oh, just another win-win. Anything new coming out with those guys? You know, we're sort of like at the point now where I just want to do one big deal at the end to wrap it up because I got a pile of stuff down there sitting there. His focus is shifted because, you know, let's face it, the video market's drying up. Yeah. We know we can sell probably a nice final box set or whatever. It's mm-hmm. just a question of getting him getting the time, you know, to be able to get it together. It's sitting there. Yeah. He puts it together. They do the transfer. Then he sends me the transfer with the file. I go over the stuff then you know, shoot the wraparounds myself and then mm-hmm. send, send the SIM card down and we're in business. It's easier that way. You know, usually it was going into the studio. I go through half a pack of fucking Marlboro lights and three joints before we got anything done, you know, on camera. So. <laughs> they got it. Yeah, they got it. Takes a day and a half to light your chair. No, you know, the whole, the whole thing was, you know, it was weird because I was doing stuff for him before. I did the uh, Pleasures of a Woman, two Nick Phillips things before, and he had he had a director with him, mm. and I'm trying to think what it was. I had to go up to the office. He wanted me to do the thing with the Ushi dog. I think it was Dr. Christina of Sweden. I saw the thing. I knew what I was doing. He had me all mic'd up, and I said, well, what do you got for me? He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, then I said, you know something? Just turn the fucking camera off, and I went, and so far, that's worked. <laughs> You know, yeah. <laughs> for what we're doing, it works. You know, even with even with the YouTube channel, I used to give it to a friend of mine. You know, they used to put it up. You know, edit and stuff like that. But then they got their own thing. Once I find out how to stick the SIM card in the computer that I really don't know how to use, I can get it up there. Everybody except me works, and I'm like, I failed data processing three fucking times in 1970. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised I even turned on a damn computer. But the problem, everybody who's tried it is is banged heads now. I, I just met this person who became a really good friend of mine, Lorena, and she goes, let me try this. It took her two weeks. We got two fisted tails from Times Square up on like eight platforms, including Amazon, I think. Uh-huh. So we got that. You know, now she's working on the gunfighters thing, which never really got where I wanted it to be. Right. I'm dealing with like, you know, three or four different people right now, but it's good because everybody's, you know, into what we're doing. There's no egos involved or anything like that. Excellent. Where the other problem was you had a, you know, I didn't know what I was dealing with. I was, you know, trying to keep shit going during the pandemic when basically shit, how many fucking people that I was tight, with just died right around me. Yeah. So bad time. Yeah, it was, it was really yeah. bad. But so you've no pun intended here. You've resurrected this magazine. So uh, yeah, yeah. T- tell us tell us about that. Well, you know, like I said, my friend John Schatzer, who was you know with me with the other magazine as a writer, said, "Let me try to edit it." So he introduced me to Eric and Angie Wright, who put out Midnight Magazine, mm. and they said they could format it. So I'm like, "All right, I can write shit. I can hustle shit. As far as any of this tech shit, I can't do it." So I said, "I'll give it a shot." So in the first issue, we fit. What would have taken close to 100 pages in the other issue, the way it was formatted, into 68 pages in this this issue with more content. Wow. You know, guys are showing up. The guy I hadn't talked to in years, Bill Karchmitt, uh, showed up. And actually, he was one of the flyer guys on 42nd Street. Oh, my God. He flyers for the massage parlors and shit. So he was writing a story about that. <laughs> he was taking in some stuff. So, 
you know, it, it's all it's all been good. We're just, you know, like I said, we're just, you know, and the weird part is I've sold a bunch to Canada, even with the fucking postage being 24 hours to ship one or two magazines there. And as far as Norway, and it's really flattering that people really want to read our stuff, you know, and are willing to pay that much to read it. Well, Pete, one thing we know is that some folks, they just get tweaked with some of the stuff you put up there. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I know I got fucking heat with certain people. It, it comes with the territory. Mm -hmm. My whole attitude is I don't take any shit from anybody because nobody's ever handed me anything on a fucking silver platter except for Mike Vrainy, Chiller Theater, and, and uh, Screw Magazine. Everything else from that uh, that point on, I did myself. When I did the magazine, you know, and even with this magazine, the offer's out there. If anybody wants to try to write, you know, if we think we can use it, we'll put it in. That's my, you know, my thing, you know, and I'm always open to shit, you know, we're doing this now. Yeah. You know, it isn't like I'm, I'm hard to get along with or something like that, but you know, in <laughs> certain aspects of this business, I draw fucking heat because I just, you know, I don't kiss anybody's ass. That's all. Well, man, he was a hoot, bro. What a treat. <laughs> he, he was and is indeed. Um, uh, we've left links up on this episode as well. To all things Pete, and uh, we urge you to check them out. Support the uh, Grindhouse Resurrection, friends. You'll feel so much better for doing so, I promise. Hell, buy a past issue of Screw Magazine from them. For crying out loud, they, I, I mean, they're classics, yeah? <laughs> yeah, in a manner of speaking, I suppose, yes, he's happy to sell you one of those. Well, he's posting new videos on his YouTube channel almost, uh, almost daily, I think. Fairly regularly, yeah, yeah. All fun, all the time. And uh, with that, we'll take our tattered and mystery-stained posters of Return of the Curse of the Penguins of Bondage and scurry back under the shag throw rug, but not before thanking our contributors to this edition of the show, Ami Binford and Gregory Wilson for outstanding vocalizationisms. Thanks as well to uh, Nick and Shoda and all the delightful folks of the Stinkfoot Orchestra for clips and uh, keeping the torch lit so bright. Thanks as always to the uh, intervestibular man of mystery, the maestro of the meters, Milt Keynes, for technical assistance and so forth and so on. Pleasure as always. And uh, folks, you can really do us a solid by uh, liking, subscribing, and Hell, reviewing this here show, wherever you may have found it, our uh, parole officers would really appreciate it. Yes, yes they would. You can also join the Poetic Frenzy growing now at patreon.com forward slash Show and uh, sign up. Become one of the enlightened ones. Get free swag, early show releases, and uh, extra added content enjoyment by doing so. Oh, and it's dirt cheap, too. I bet you spend more on coffee in those overpriced places in a month than it would cost to help us out for an entire year. Yes, I second that emotion, sir. Uh, thanks, friends, for joining us on this edition of the show. I have been your tripping the light fantastic, but in the wrong shoes, host Mark Rose, saying, until our next cartoon.
John Holmes was a porn legend and actually an accessory to murder also, if you read his sordid history. Uh, this one's called Sunset Strip. Uh, I don't know why it's called Sunset Strip, because John's wife tries to feed him a box of Kentucky Fried Chicken. And if you notice John's demented look on his face when he goes nuts and starts stabbing the colonel in the face with a steak knife, um, maybe shades of things to come, I don't know. Finger looking good? Holy carp. <laughs>